Matthew 25, we're going to be verse 14 through verse 30, the parable of the talents. This is, um, if you remember, this is sitting, or we're getting towards the end of the Olivet Discourse where Jesus is teaching his disciples uh, from the Mount of Olives. And if you remember also, there's, a been, there's been, especially as you get towards the end of this discourse, there's a lot of attention given to the last things, um, to eschatology, to the, the study of end times things. And uh, these, this parable, the parable from last week and the parable this week are no different um, in the sense that they're both about the last things. And so let's pray, and then we're going to read this passage and dig in. Father, thank you so much for your word, and thank you so much for letting us sing to you just now. Lord, what a sweet thought that when we've been there for 10,000 years, we'll have no less days to sing your praise. And Lord, thank you for letting us sing this stuff to you. Lord, we want to worship you. We want to be your true worshipers that worship you in spirit and truth. And I pray that you'd help us to continue that right now as we read your word. Your word is so important to us. And you said that you, said that you give attention to those that are humble and crushed in spirit and who tremble at your word. And so, Lord, we want our hearts in that place right now. Help us to be those that tremble at your word. Teach us. Teach us, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 25, verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also had... And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. 
He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have, where I have scattered, where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was mine, what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So let's try to think through just the plain sense of this parable. What is this, you know, this story that Jesus tells here? Uh, just what's here? What do we understand is here? You have a very, very wealthy man that's about to go on a long journey, and so he needs to entrust his property, um, specifically his money, uh, his uh, talents of money. He needs to uh, entrust this property to somebody as he goes on a long journey. And that's, in this time period, this, that would not have been an uncommon thing for a very, very wealthy person going on a long journey uh, to do. Well, this master decides to entrust his money to three of his servants. To three of his servants. And each one of these servants has different abilities, it says here. Uh, and it says that so he delivered up these, uh, the property according to their abilities. They have different abilities. So he gave one five, one two, and one, one talent. Now, a talent here is not like, I hope you know this, it's not like America's got talent. Um, or that's a talented individual. It's a weight of measurement of, of money. And uh, one talent here, just one, would have been like a small fortune. I mean, this is a lot. Uh, I think one commentator said what any man would wish to make uh, uh, money-wise in, in half his lifetime would be just one talent. Can you imagine five? Can you imagine two? So it's a lot of money here, a lot of money represented represented. And so what are the master's expectations on these three servants while he's gone? Well, he wants them to use the money to make a profit, to trade, do business, trade, invest, but make a profit while he's gone. Now, we know that that seems really clear from the way he responds, the master, the way he responds to the one servant that didn't do that. His expectation is that they would make a profit, they would do business while he's gone. You can also go look at a parallel passage in Luke 19, verse 13, where he actually delivers up the, the money and then says, do business until I come. So they were expected to trade, they were expected to make some sort of profit. And so how do the three servants respond to the master? Well, he would receive five talents. It says he immediately, look at it in verse 16, he immediately obeyed or he right then right in that moment he obeys and then he doubles the money so he comes back with five more talents 
He received two talents, same thing. Immediately he obeys his master, and the master's going on a long journey. By the time he gets back, he doubles the money. He comes back with two more talents. But the one that received one talent, it says in verse 18, he buried the money. He buried the money. Now that might seem really strange to us, but this would not have been, this would not have been a strange thing at this time. This is one of the safest things that you could do uh, with a large sum of money if your goal was to make sure you don't lose it. It doesn't get lost. They would, they would find a way to bury this money, and that's exactly what he did. He didn't want to lose it. He wanted to have exactly what he was given by the master to be able to give it right back to him whenever the master returned. Now it says a long time. You see that in our passage. It says a long time goes by. The master's gone on his journey for a long time, but then he eventually returns. And when he returns, the phrase here is he comes back to settle accounts. So he goes on a long journey. He comes back to these three servants who were given five, two, and one talent, and he's going to come back and settle, as it says here, settle the accounts. Now, how does the master deal with each one of these servants as, he, as they give an account after his absence? The one who received five talents and made five talents more, look how he deals with them in verse 23. Verse 23, it says, His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The one who received two talents and made two talents more, how did he deal with him? Look at it, verse 23. It's exactly the same. Well done. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So dealt with them the same. And then what about the one that received the one talent and buried it? How does he deal with this person? This is a servant that didn't bear any fruit. He received something. He received uh, something and trusted him from the master but didn't bear any fruit. And notice the excuse he gives in verse 24 and 25. And then in verse 26, we'll see how the master responds to him. Verse 24, the excuse he gives is, he also who had received the one talent came forth saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. So based off of what he thought about the master and not wanting to face punishment, afraid of punishment, that's his excuse. He says, I just hid the money. Here's your, here's your money. It's just like you gave it to me. And here's the response. Verse 26, but his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. Think about that. He calls him a wicked and slothful servant. He rebukes him. He says, you knew that I reap where I've not sown and gather where I've not scattered, I've scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him Give it to him who has ten talents. Strip what he has away. So he rebukes him. He strips away what he has. He strips it away from him. And verse 30 says, And cast the worthless servant, the worthless servant, into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So he rebukes him. He strips from him what he has. 
and he condemns him to outer darkness. Now, most of the attention, most of the attention of this parable is on that rebuke. It's on that rebuke. So let's talk for just a minute. So this is the plain sense of our parable. I hope you see what's here. Let's talk about the main point. What is the main point of this parable? It's a warning. Brothers and sisters, this is a warning about the second coming of Christ and the judgment that will immediately follow. It's a warning about the second coming of Christ and the judgment that will, that will immediately follow. That's sort of the broad point of this parable. Now, more specifically, on that final day, there will be those that claim to be servants of Christ, servants of the Master, but in the end, they'll be condemned into outer darkness. That's getting into the point of this parable. There's those that claim to be servants, but in the end, they're going to be condemned into outer darkness. How you live while, while Jesus is gone, while he's away, will certainly affect your eternity. That's getting at the heart of this parable. How you live while Jesus is gone will certainly affect your eternity. Now, I want you to think about how this is interesting. Um, this... Olivet Discourse, you know, we've been, we've been reading about this. The way it started was this uh, question about the end of all things. Remember that in chapter 24, verse 1 through 3? It's a question about the end of all things and Christ coming and what that's going to be like. And so here you've got this Olivet Discourse, a, a huge uh, part of this teaching is about Christ's second coming. And towards the end, we get this constant warning. I wonder if you've noticed it. A constant warning about false conversion. Remember the five foolish virgins from last week? They represent false converts. They literally call Jesus Lord. They think they're going to make it to the marriage feast. But when they get there, the door is shut. And they hear, I never knew you. In our passage today, we've got this, this man with the one talent that represents a false convert. He thinks he's a servant. He thinks everything's going to be fine. Here, here's the talent that you delivered to me. Condemned into outer darkness. Next week, as, this, as the, the Olivet Discourse is, is, is closed, we're going to see something similar. Jesus says, when I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. And they're going to be shocked. Lord, they're going to, it's people that call Jesus Lord. They're going to say, Lord, when did we see you like this and not do what you're, not, not serve you? When did this happen? And they'll be condemned into eternal punishment. People that weren't expecting to be false converts. So there's, there's a big focus here in our passage and throughout the end of the Olivet Discourse on false converts. So what's the main point of this parable? Jesus is coming back like the master returning from a long journey. And when he comes, there will be a reckoning. There will be a judgment. The faithful will be rewarded. The unfaithful will be punished forever. So take the warning, the warning of this parable. Your faithfulness to Jesus or your lack of faithfulness to Jesus will affect your eternity. And the parable is trying to wake us up to this. Be warned by this. Many who claim to be servants of Christ will in the end face eternal damnation. Now, 
What does this parable tell us about Jesus? What does this parable tell us about Jesus? And let me give you four things here that, he tell, that it tells us about Christ. Number one, Jesus is our master. The master in this parable is a representation of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus is master. Jesus is Lord. That's who he is. There's a popular saying in our culture, I made Jesus my Savior, but I had not yet made him my Lord. And I want you to understand that it doesn't work that way. Jesus is Lord. Regardless of the way you view him or the way you obey him, he just is master. He just is Lord. Now, what people usually mean by this is, I had sin and I felt guilty of my sin. And so, because I felt guilty of my sin, I prayed this prayer. I asked Jesus to come into my heart. And, and I wanted him to be my savior. Now, I never repented. I never repented and made him my Lord. That's what they mean by that. And I want you to understand that there's no salvation in that. The scripture is clear that salvation is through repentance and faith. There's no salvation in that. You either serve him as master or you face him as enemy. This parable puts him forward as master. He's not our best bud. He's not the homeboy. He's master and Lord. That's who Jesus is. He just is. Number two, Jesus is rich beyond measure. And praise God, he is generous toward his servants. He's rich beyond measure. And he is generous towards his servants. The master in this parable, he doesn't just have one talent uh, that measurement of money. He doesn't just have one talent to throw around. That would be a small fortune enough. But he's got five talents and two talents and one talent. He's just throwing it out there. And then what does he say about it later to the, to the service? He says, you have been faithful over what? Uh, just a little. So here's this rich, extremely wealthy master that, that's throwing out five talents, two talents, just throwing out a fortune as he pleases. And he says, it's just a little. You've been faithful over a little. This is a representation of the wealth of King Jesus, the real wealth. I'm not talking about a banking, a banking account. I'm talking about the richness of Jesus. And just like we see in this parable, Jesus is generous with his riches. When you come to the end of the parable, think about the, the, the man that received five talents. When you come to the end of the parable, the guy who had five talents made five talents more, so he has ten. Who has those ten talents at the end of the parable? And it says that, that the master said, strip it away, strip the one away from the one that was unfaithful and give it to him who has ten talents. Apparently the master had given it right back to him. He's a generous, generous master with his riches. This is a good reminder to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says this. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, he made himself poor. So that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Man, if you understand that right, that is, that's got gospel all over it. Think about that. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he is rich, he's like this wealthy master. Though he's rich... Jesus made himself poor. 
He's talking about the condescension of Christ, the suffering of Christ, the humility of Christ, who laid aside his glory to die for sinners like us. And he said he made himself poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Man, he's generous with his wealth. He's a rich master. Number three, what does this parable tell us about Jesus? Jesus came into this world, he accomplished a work, and he is left. He came into this world, he accomplished a work, and he's left. Now this correlates with the parable, because in the parable it says the master is going away on a long journey. And that correlates with that. That's Jesus. Jesus has died for sinners crucified in our place, our substitute, risen from the dead, ascended on high, he's gone away. And so we live in this time period where our master, we're servants of a master that has gone away on a long journey. We live in this time period. Matthew chapter 9, if you remember this, this is back when he was asked the, the question about fasting. He says something similar. Matthew 9 verse 14 says, Then the disciples of John came to Jesus saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? He said, My disciples aren't going to fast as long as I'm with them. The bridegroom's with them. But then he says, The days will come. When the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. We live in that time period now. Christ has been crucified for sinners. He laid down his life for us, risen from the dead. Now he's the bridegroom that's been taken away. And we're his people that mourn. We're his people that fast. And we're his servants that have been given responsibility to live faithfully toward him while he's gone. We live in this time period. So Jesus came, accomplished a work, and he's left. Now, number four, what does this parable tell us about Jesus? Jesus will return one day, and judgment will follow. He promised it. He's coming back one day, and judgment will follow. Matthew 25, verse 19 in our parable It says, now after a long time, the master of those servants came. He came, and so will Jesus. Jesus will come and settled accounts with them, and he'll do that too. Jesus will come, and he will settle accounts. He will come, and judgment will follow. Please do not be confused by his first coming. When he first came, he came in humility. He came to die for sinners. But Hebrews chapter 9 verse 28 says when he comes again, he's not coming for sin, but he's coming for salvation. When he comes a second time, he's not coming in humility. He's coming in exaltation. He's coming as the glorious king to save his people and to pour out absolute vengeance on his enemies. When he comes a second time, he's not coming the way he came the first time. Revelation chapter 19 gives us such a a beautiful image of it. Verse 11, listen to God's word. 
about this coming of Christ. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them. With a rod of iron, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is how he's coming back. Revelation 6 describes this as the day of the wrath of the Lamb. Is he the lamb? Amen, he's the lamb. He was slaughtered like a lamb in our place. He came as the humble lamb. But the next time he comes, it's going to be called the wrath of the Lamb is here. And Revelation 6 says people are going to hide their faces and hide behind mountains and say, please save us. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. He will certainly come and judgment will certainly follow. This is what this parable tells us about Jesus. Now, what does this parable tell us about the servants of Jesus? What does this parable teach us about servants of Jesus? A few things here. Number one, servants of Jesus are to live in expectation of his return. Now the question you should ask is how? How do we live in expectation of his return? Well, the parable teaches us that. But we're supposed to live in expectation of his return. Now, he will return. Don't lose sight of that. Be in expectation he's coming and you don't know when. Now, the way we live in expectation of that is not what I often call the Acts 1 gazing. You remember that in Acts chapter 1? Jesus ascends into heaven and it says that the disciples are just standing there gazing into heaven. And suddenly an angel appears and says, Why are you gazing into heaven? And essentially, the angel goes on to say, get busy. He told you some stuff to do. Get busy. Why are you getting... So we don't, we, we don't live in expectation by Acts 1 gazing into heaven, but we get busy. We serve the Lord. We obey Him in this life until He returns. This is the way we live in expectation. It's faithful service to Him. 1 John 2.28, it says, Now little children... Abide in him, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back in shame at his appearing. Are you living by your faithful servants like, like the, the man that received five talents, the man who received two talents in this parable? Are you living in faithful service to him as you await his coming? Now, our parable says, after a long time, okay? Now, that, that means something. And the master was gone, and how long was he gone? Our parable says, after a long time. Now, if you remember, 
Jesus has made it very clear in this teaching to the disciples that originally heard this that there would be a delay in his coming. Do you remember that at the very beginning in Matthew 24? The disciples were slamming two things together. The destruction of the temple and everything's done, the end of all things, the coming of Christ. They were slamming those two things together. And Jesus spends time in Matthew 24 and here in Matthew 25 pushing them to understand there's a delay here. The, the temple will be destroyed just like Jesus prophesied, and it was. But that there would be a delay after that of his coming. And so the question that he's answering here is what do we do? During that delay when you're gone, what do we do? You serve him. You serve him. You obey him. This is how you live in expectation of his return. How will you be found at the second coming of Christ? Will you be found faithfully serving Christ? Obeying his word. How will you be found? Does your life of obedience to his word and service to Christ, does it show a person that's living in expectation that he's going to come, and I don't know when, but he's going to come? Does it show expectation? So servants of Christ are to live in expectation of his return by obedience to Christ. Number two, servants of Jesus are not expected to be the same but they are expected to be faithful. Okay? We see that in our parable. Servants, servants of Jesus are not expected to be the same, but they are expected to be faithful. Jesus does not expect every person in his church to be the same. Look at verse 15 again. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability. This is different abilities within the church, different responsibilities within the church, but all are expected to be faithful in what they've been given. Now, notice that these servants are not rewarded based off of their abilities. What's said to the one that had the five talents, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. It's the same thing that's said to the one that had two talents. Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. These are identical affirmations. So faithfulness or re reward is based off of faithfulness, not off of the different abilities of the servants. So Jesus does not expect sameness but faithfulness in his church. Now, I find myself very encouraged by the two-talent guy, right? I don't have to mope around going, I wish I had more abilities like the five-talent guy around here. I wish I had so-and-so's you know, skills or what they're able to do. I don't have to walk around doing that. I can just be the two-talent guy going, man, praise you, God, for what you've given me, and I want to be faithful in what you've given me. I find myself encouraged by the two-talent guy. It's very, very important that a church grasps this idea. Our master, who has gone on a long journey, does not expect sameness in us as a church, but faithfulness. Now, this same sort of thing is taught, if you remember, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says this. Verse 4 says, in the church, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service but the same Lord and there are varieties of activities 
but is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. If you remember, he goes on to to explain it like a body, like the body of Christ is not meant to be the same. There's just differences. There's hands and there's feet and there's eyes and ears, just different. This is not expecting sameness. According to their ability, different abilities, five talents, two talents, whatever. He's not expecting sameness. It's different parts of the body, but all are commanded to be faithful. Now, what kind of what kind of sinful disposition would need to be in somebody to expect sameness in the church? To hold yourself to that standard, to hold other people to that standard. Everybody's got to be the same. What kind of sinful disposition would do that? I want to read this to you. This is from 1 Corinthians 12 again. One sinful disposition, you can call it distrusting dejectedness. Distrusting dejectedness. Listen to this, verse 14. For the body, the body does not consist of one member but many. If the foot should say, and listen to the dejectedness here, not trusting God, distrusting God. Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? Where where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? So here's that sinful disposition they would expect sameness. What this dejected is, well, I'm not like somebody else. I must not be a part. That's a sinful disposition that goes against what Jesus is highlighting, that everybody's not the same in the church. Or another sinful disposition would be prideful partiality, just this arrogant, partial to other people that are just like themselves. Listen to this. It's in the same same flow of thought here in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Isn't that arrogant? Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. I want to encourage everybody here to beware of something. Beware of sinning against Jesus by not appreciating and delighting in His design. And His design is not sameness. It's it's this distinctions and differences, different parts of the body of Christ, but all expected to be faithful. I would encourage you, if you're walking in this sin of expecting sameness in the church, either you put that on yourself or you put it on others, I want to encourage you to repent of that. It's not what we see in 1 Corinthians 12, body of Christ, and it's not what we see in our parable. He gave one five, he gave one two, he gave one one, each according to their abilities. So our abilities are different. We don't have the same weight of talents. We function as different parts of the body, but we all must be faithful. So servant of Jesus, that's the question. Servant of Jesus, are you being faithful? Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a little, is what Jesus says here in this parable. Jesus is gone on a long journey. When he returns, will he find you faithful? Now, the talents, a lot of people want to know, what do the talents represent? And I don't know, I don't think any of us know exactly what the talent represents in the sense of 
it's this one specific thing. I don't think you're supposed to draw a straight line. Well, the, the talent represents, you know, you've been given the word of God. How are you going to be faithful to that? You've been given. The, it's not just a direct line to one thing. Now, it can have a lot of applications. That is true. You have been given God's word. That is a gift, a rich and wealthy gift given to you. You've been given the word of God. Are you being faithful with God's word? What are you doing with the word of God? Or just sit there. Or, or you've been given a mission. You've been told to make disciples of all nations, preach the gospel in all the world. You've been given a mission, a task. Are you being faithful to that task? So maybe the talent is the mission. You've been given access to God in prayer. That's a rich thing. What are you doing with that? Are you being faithful with that? You've been given His church. Or, or what are you doing with that? You've got this rich gift of the church of Jesus Christ. Are you being faithful with these things that God has given you? Now, you can make all kind of applications about God's given you this many talents. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to make a profit on it, spiritually speaking? But I believe the main point here is more broad than that. It's not just one specific thing. But are you being faithful in the Christian life in all that God has given you? Man, think about the richness. Uh, Ephesians 1 says, He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's all the blessing. The, the language in the scriptures is the inheritance of Christ. What Christ the Son gets from the Father, you are joint heirs with Him. You've been given so much in the Christian life. So the question is, are you faithful? Are you faithful and fruitful? When he returns, will you be able to be like the two-talent guy? Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I've made two talents more. Last thing I want to say about these servants. Servants of Jesus will receive a reward. They will receive a reward. Now the reward that's spoken about here is almost too glorious and beautiful for me to know even what to say to you about it. Think about Jesus' words. What's the reward? He looks at these servants and take it out of the parable now, take it into real life, and the faithful servant of Jesus, he says, well done. Can you imagine that? When you die or at his return, the, the king of glory looks at you and says, well done. Good and faithful servant. Now you might think, how could he do that? How, how could he say, well, how could he look at me? How could he look at someone like us? And say, well done, good and faithful servant. When I know very well that every good thing I've done, all the goodness, any goodness in me, any faithfulness in me, is only by His grace. I've just been washed in the blood of Christ. That's it. Given a new heart. And that new heart, He's working in me to be faithful to Him. And so how could He say this to me? And yet, He would say that? That would be the reward that from the lips of Jesus you would hear? 
In that last day, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Do you long to hear that? I know most of you do. Do you long to hear that one day? Not because you, you know, not because you're like some perfectionist that wants to just pass a test, but because you love every utterance from the mouth of Christ. When Jesus speaks, oh, I love his words. I want anything he says. And he's going to say something about me. And it's going to sound like this. Well done, good and faithful servant. Man, that's glorious. That's reward. Even if I had no idea what came after that, if it was just that and it was over, it'd be glorious. And I hope all of you feel that. Well done, good and faithful servant. What a reward. And then it doesn't end there. It says this. It says, enter, listen to Jesus' words, enter into the joy of your master. Man, what an easy command to obey. On the last day, well done, good and faithful servant. What do you want me to do now? Enter into the joy of your master. Not just enter into joy, not just happiness, not just joy, but enter, enter into the joy of your master. Man, that's glorious. Just the thought of being granted joy forever would be enough to worship him for. But this says the joy of your master. It's like an invitation in. See, our God possesses a joy that will never end, that is, that is unstoppable. An eternal joy that he possesses. And it's not just go be happy forever. No, it's, it's come into my joy, enter into mine. It's not just go be happy over there somewhere. It's come sit at the table with me. And Psalm 1611 says, In His presence is fullness of joy. At His right hand, at His table, is, is pleasures forevermore. Man, come enter, into, come enter into that. That's a reward. So servants of Jesus will receive a reward. The affirmation of Christ and the entrance into his joy. But here we got to get back to the point or the main point of this parable. Everybody that claims to be a servant of Christ is not truly a servant of Christ. And that's what most of the time in this parable is spent on that. That everyone who claims to be a servant of Christ actually is a servant of Christ who will one day hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, I want to read really a paragraph here, so stay with me. It's from Ligon Duncan on this. And I thought he explained this really well. And this is the last point I want to mention to you, and this is just to, to beware, to beware of do-nothing Christianity. And I'm getting this from exactly what Ligon Duncan says right here. Listen to this. You see the point of the story, friends. The point, he's speaking about the parable we're in this morning. <clears throat> the point about the third slave is that he did nothing. The point of the story is not that the slave was a murderer or that the slave was an adulterer, or that the slave had committed some great crime. In fact, the slave was not even the prodigal son. He hadn't even wasted his father's money. He didn't even waste the money. 
He just did nothing. He claimed to be a part of the household of God, but his life did not reflect the life of God in his soul. This man is condemned, not because of what he did, but because of what he didn't do. We're not told that the unprofitable servant was a murderer or a thief or even a waster of his Lord's money, but that he did nothing. And that was his ruin. Let us beware of do-nothing Christianity. And that's what I want to warn us about now. To beware of do-nothing Christianity. Now think about that, the third servant, where this parable spends most of its time. That third servant just did nothing. He didn't do anything. That was his downfall. He just did nothing. And I want you to be warned by this. What must you do to go to hell? You don't have to be a notorious sinner. Just do nothing and you'll bust hell wide open. And that's the warning of this passage. Just do nothing. Like this servant. Notice the master's charge to him. He says, you wicked and slothful servant. Wicked because he disobeyed what the master said. Slothful because he did nothing. He's slothful because he just did nothing. Spiritual laziness is a sin. And it's, also de- it's often dealt with very, very lightly. But according to this parable, spiritual laziness is deadly. It's deadly serious. The threat in this parable is that spiritual laziness or do-nothing Christianity is a path to hell. Do-nothing Christianity is a path to hell. Now, quick side note. This parable is not teaching, and I am not teaching that we should do something to earn our way into heaven. You never could. All your works are like a filthy rag. You can't earn your way in. On your best day is not enough for you to make it into heaven. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's it. So this is not do something and earn your way into heaven. But if you have a do-nothing Christianity... You are putting it on display that you have not been a recipient of the grace of God. How do we know? Because Titus 2 says the grace of God that brings salvation, it also teaches us to deny ungodliness, worldly lust, and to live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age. That's Titus 2.11. Do nothing Christianity is a path to hell. Now, Our culture, and hear me out on this, our culture has made a safe space for do-nothing Christianity. And it's made a safe space for do-nothing Christianity by removing the threat that Jesus places here. So I want you to think about what that means. God has given me His Word, the Scriptures, but I do nothing with it sits on the coffee table God's given me his church I show up most Sundays but that's about it God's given me access to him in prayer 
But the only prayer he receives is maybe before mealtime. God has given me a mission to preach the gospel, but I can't remember the last time I shared the gospel with anybody. But, and here's the safe space for that do-nothing Christianity. Here's the safe space. But it doesn't mean I'll go to hell. It just means that I won't have as much of a reward. You know, they'll have mansions in heaven. I'll just have a little shack in heaven. They'll have big rewards. I'll just have small rewards. But it doesn't mean I'll go to hell. Because, you know, I know my master to be a hard master. And I'm afraid of punishment. So I checked that box. I got that ticket out of hell. I'll, I'll be in heaven. I know I'm not faithful, but I'll be in heaven. Our world's created a safe space for do-nothing Christianity. Is that what the parable teaches us? The parable does not teach us. Jesus does not threaten do-nothing Christianity with a little shack in heaven or less reward. That's not the way he threatens do-nothing Christianity. How does he threaten these so-called servants who do nothing? How does Jesus threaten these so-called servants who do nothing? And let's read it again. Verse 28. Take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Strip what he has is good from him. If you're in this life, even if you're an enemy of God, even if you're a hater of God, if you're not even saved, you are receiving grace from God and mercy from God in His common grace towards you. Moments of joy, moments of peace, stuff that you have, you've received that, but listen to me. The threat that if you have do-nothing Christianity, even that will be stripped away from you. Even what you seem to have will be taken away. No joy in hell. Not a moment of peace. Not a thought that it might end. And then he says this in verse 30. And this is just a straight up threat of hell. And cast, verse 30. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. How does Jesus threaten the the do-nothing Christianity? He threatens it with this. Outer darkness. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is a place of outer darkness. There's no light. There's no light. Complete, complete, imagine it, complete absence of the light of the gracious presence of God. No grace whatsoever. Everybody on this planet, even haters of God, get get little, little grace here and there. The common grace of God. But none of it. Outer darkness. Weeping, it says. It's a place of never-ending sorrow, deeper sorrow than anything that's ever been experienced on this earth. It's a place of weeping, and the weeping never ends. The sorrow never ends. The sadness never ends. It's a place of gnashing of teeth. That's a symbol of pain. When something hurts and you crush your teeth together because it just hurts so bad. But every pain you've ever experienced on this earth has some sort of hope of an end. Even if that end is death. The pain will end, not in hell. 
It's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's sorrow and it's pain. And it's forever and ever and ever. And it has no end. And this is the way Jesus threatens do-nothing Christianity. Now, I realize that's a forcible description of hell. And, and no, nobody speaks about hell so forcibly as Jesus. This is where we get this from. It's from Jesus himself. I want to read this to you from Charles Spurgeon. He said this about that very thing. The most awful descriptions of hell that ever fell from human lips do not exceed the language of the loving Christ himself. He is the true lover of men who faithfully warns them concerning the eternal woe that awaits the unrepentant. While he who paints the miseries of hell as though they were but trifling is seeking to murder men's souls under the pretense of friendship. Of friendship. So let me close by highlighting just highlighting the point of this parable. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is coming again. Servants of Jesus. Jesus is coming back. Judgment will certainly follow. All those who have looked to Christ in repentance and faith, and that will be evidenced by faithfulness and fruitfulness in your life, will receive a reward. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of of your master but the do nothing so called Christians will be exposed on the last day and their end will be eternal damnation eternal damnation this is a parable that calls everybody here to examine themselves examine your life are you like these faithful servants or are you more like this do-nothing servant? And Jesus loves you and Jesus loves us enough to right now warn us about this stuff so that if we do find ourselves as that first talent, one talent person, that we can change course. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, thank you so much for your teaching. Father, thank you so much for letting us sit here and meditate, read and meditate on your word. And I pray, God, that you would help us. Help us to receive your word with eagerness and like those Bereans ready to search the scriptures daily to see if it's true. And God, I want to lift up every soul here. I praise you, God, that they're are so many true servants of yours around this room. And I pray that they would eagerly expect that coming day when they hear, well done, good and faithful servant, and they enter into your joy. God, I pray that every servant of yours here, God, would eagerly expect that. God, don't let us grow cold. Don't let us grow distracted. Help us to faithfully serve you here, Lord. And Lord, I want to ask you for any soul, Lord, that is like this servant that just buried the talent. 
God, I pray that you would awaken them. Please, 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 Lord, awaken their souls. Open their eyes. And give them eternal life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.